The scripture reading from today is from Genesis 35, 1 through 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Along Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came up from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from, come, shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. That God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, Jacob's hope is our hope because Jacob's hope was you. Jacob's hope was the relentless grace of God that pursued him all the days of his life and finally bred in him an undivided heart and devotion to you. And that's our hope as well. And I pray, Father, that as we crawl into the story today, I pray that you would make that hope a living hope for us. I pray that the words of the Scripture and the words of my mouth would seem as the words of God to us today. And I pray that like a seed planted on fertile soil, that your word would plant deeply inside of our hearts and that it would sprout and grow and produce much fruit for the glory of your name and the joy of our souls and for the good of the nations. And Father, I pray a big prayer like that because your designs in Jacob's life were huge. They were not small designs. And your designs in our lives are huge as well. We seem sometimes so small and our lives sometimes seem so insignificant. But in the great swath of what you're doing in Christ, it's just amazing what we're a part of in Christ. And I thank you for that. And again, I ask you to use your word today to bring us just one more step farther down the road toward the hope that we have in you, which is you. We love you, Father, and we trust you for this. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen. Beloved, living life with Christ is ultimately about Christ, and it's not ultimately about us. So what I mean by that is choosing to believe in Jesus Christ is ultimately about a choice he made about us 
not ultimately about a choice that we made about Him. And remaining faithful to Christ all the days of our lives, walking with Him day after day, month after month, year after year, for an entire lifetime, remaining faithful to Him is not essentially about vows that we've made to Him, but it's about promises that He's made to us to keep us all the way to the day when Jesus Christ returns again. Life in Christ is ultimately about Christ, and our hope is in Him. Our hope it does not lie inside of us. We have a part to play, that's for sure. That's for sure. But all I'm saying is that the reason we play our part is because God has already played His part. And that's where our hope lies. We love God because God first loved us. And we will continue to love God all the way to the end because God first loved us. And He said, I have given you eternal life and no one will snatch you out of my hands. That's where our hope lies. Our hope is in God not in us. And that's a great hope indeed. A hope that lies in us is a shakable hope. But a hope that lies in God at the end of the day is not shakable. We may feel like it's shaking, but the truth of the matter is, if your hope is truly in God, your your hope is unshakable. Today we're going to look at a story together about the relentless grace of God that wooed Jacob toward himself through all kinds of trials and failures and temptations, and we're going to see that Jacob's hope was this. God chose Jacob. Jacob was a real mess, and his family was a real mess, but God is a great God. And he put his hand on Jacob, and no matter what happened, no matter where this guy went, God was going to bless him. God was going to bring him into the fullness of his purposes. That's what today's story is about. All kinds of tragedies and difficulties, but here standing above it all, over it all, is a massively gracious God who is just unceasing and relentless in His mercy, will not stop pouring mercy upon this man all the way to the end of his life. And because of that, Jacob had hope. And Jacob's hope is our hope today. God chose Jacob, and in Jesus Christ, God chose us. So I want to invite you to just crawl into this story with me today. I'm going to make hardly any application at all to our lives today. I just feel compelled to just tell the story as well as I can. But you know, sometimes the best way to deal with your own problems is getting out of yourself for a little while and just crawling into somebody else's skin and seeing how God dealt with them and seeing how God was faithful to them. And somehow in getting out of yourself and into them, you you somehow find hope for your own problems. This, this week, beloved, this whole story has been so encouraging to me. I remember several times riding my bike around. This was a big bike riding week for me this week. And I'm riding my bike several days and just thinking, Oh God, thank you for the hope that I have in you. You were faithful to Jacob. And I know in Jesus Christ you're going to be faithful to me. So I want to invite you just to crawl into this story with me and let the Lord minister to you today. Jacob had left his native land 20 years before and traveled back to the homeland of his grandfather Abraham, and his purpose in this was to get a wife, but it was also to escape his brother who wanted to kill him. I don't know if any of you have ever been in that situation. I have four brothers, or three brothers. None of them's ever actually wanted to kill me, but if one of them did, it would be a good reason for me to want to leave the family, and that's what happened to Jacob. Esau literally plotted to take his life, and so he decided, along with his mother, to go back to the land of his ancestors and get for himself a wife. On his way there... God appeared to him and said, Jacob, I will be faithful to you all the days of your life. I'm going to be your defender. I'm going to be your provider. 
I will take you there, and someday I will take you back to this land where you are from. You will come back into the land of promise, and you will know that I am God. And Jacob said back to the Lord, Lord, if you will fulfill that promise to me, then I will embrace you as my God. And as I said last week, I don't think Jacob was saying that to test God in any way. I think he was simply saying, God, I believe you. And if you're faithful to your word, I will receive you as my God. The day I come back into this land and see that you've done everything you said you would do, I will embrace you and I will never let you go. And you'll remember from last week that God did, in fact, 20 years after he left, brought Jacob back into this land and he ended up in a city called Shechem. And in the city of Shechem, he built an altar and he called that altar El Eloi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And you remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So he's saying, God, my God, you were faithful to me for two decades. Everywhere I went, you protected me from people who would harm me. You prospered me at every turn. When Laban changed my wages ten times and did everything he could do to outwit me and trick me, you were with me, God. And even when I did silly things like try to get spotted and striped sheep to come out by putting little things before their water trough like that was going to work, it worked. Everything I did, you blessed me. And then you brought me back into the land and you protected me from my brother who still may have wanted to kill me. And now I see you're faithful. I embrace you as my God. You are God, the God of Israel. That's the end of chapter 33. And now we pick the story up actually at the beginning of chapter 34. So if you'll turn there, chapter 34, verse 1, we read actually quite a tragic story. Jacob's first wife, Leah, had borne him six sons and one daughter. And the daughter's name was Dinah. They're all grown up now. Their, their family's living in Shechem, in the promised land. They'd settled there. And one day, Dinah goes out into the city to mix with the women of that city. I don't know what her motive was. I don't know if she was just going out to meet people, going out to have a good time. I don't know if she was escaping from the protection of the family. You know, in other words, was she not supposed to go to the city? I don't, I don't really know. The Bible's silent about all this. But what I do know is she left the safety of home. She went into the city by herself. And while she was there, she caught somebody's eye. She's probably good looking enough and she caught someone's eye. And in fact, she caught the eye of one of the most powerful people in that whole area, the namesake of that city and the prince of the land. His name was Shechem. Shechem was a powerful man and I assume from what he did, he was arrogant. He saw what he wanted and he wanted to get what he wanted to get. And so, uh, without Dinah's consent, he, he took her. He had her way with Dinah. He had his way with Dinah. The Bible says he saw her, he seized her, he laid with her, he humiliated her. It does say in verse 3 that he had affections for her, so I doubt that he was being brutal in all of this, but one way or another, he saw her, he was attracted, and he had his way without her consent. He was arrogant, he used his power against her, and now, given the way that he felt though, he actually wanted to find a way to get this woman for his wife. And so he asked his dad, Hamor, the king of that area, Dad, would you please go and get this woman for me a wife? Now, somehow or other, Jacob heard about this incident, but the Bible says that his sons were still off with the flocks. Sometimes when people in that time were, were grazing their flocks, they could be a day, two, three days journey away somewhere with the flocks. So his sons were not in the immediate area. They were off doing their jobs. 
But for whatever reason, Jacob used that as a justification to do nothing in the face of what had just happened. I don't know if he was waiting to take counsel with his sons. I don't know if perhaps he was afraid. You remember, he was, even though he was a powerful man, he was a foreigner in this land. And I don't know if he was afraid that if he confronted the situation, that all the other nations there would gather against him and attack him and kill him and take his place away. I don't know what was going on in his heart, but this much I know, Jacob's daughter was just defiled and he did nothing. He was silent. So in the midst of his silent Hamor decides to go out to Jacob, and he does, and he tries to strike a deal with him about Dinah. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons heard what happened, and unlike their father, they're completely outraged at what they heard, as you and I probably would be as well. They were deeply offended, deeply outraged. They come back home, and there's Hamor and Shechem and their dad. And now here come the sons, full of anger, and Hamor tries to calm them down. Hamor tells them, listen, what my son did to your sister was not good. But he really does have affection for her. He really does love her. He wants to marry her. Please, let's, let's make a deal. and let, let this be the deal. Let's make a pact to intermarry. Not just this woman with this man, but our women with your men and your women with our men. Let's make a pact to become one people. And if you will agree to that, we'll give you access to all the land. Everything we have, it'll be yours. The choicest of everything will be yours. The full rights of trade with all the nations of the world will be yours. And I've told you before, that was a significant thing. You, you had off to the east, you had the eastern empires. Off to the west, you had the, the, the beginnings of what would become Europe later. Down in the south, you had Egypt. And the, tra- the trade routes between all these mighty empires ran right through Israel. So if you had the power of trade in that land, you had a lot of power. And what these people are saying is, listen, just give us this woman, make a pact with us to intermarry, and we'll give you everything. We'll give you everything. So I think at this point, the sons of Jacob withdrew for a little while because they did answer, and it was a complicated answer. I don't think their answer could have been developed like right in the heat of the moment. So what I think probably happened is that they withdrew and conferred together for a while, and they came up with the plan And in verse 13, they told them that plan, and and it was a deceitful one. One thing I want to point out here, as I mentioned just a second ago, is where the heck is Jacob in all of this? Why are his sons negotiating this deal? Jacob's the one in power. Jacob's the one who owns the whole estate. Jacob is the one who has total authority over all of his sons. Jacob is the father of Dinah, this precious woman who was just defiled. Where is Jacob? What's up with his passivity? Why are his sons coming up into the vacuum of his passivity? This is not good. This is not good. The Bible doesn't actually straight out answer these questions, but the way that the story plays out shows you the destructiveness of Jacob's passivity. I think there's this underlying question all throughout this chapter. Where is Jacob? What's he doing? What's he doing? The brothers come back though. The the sons come back and they do answer for their father. They meet with Hamor and Shechem and they say this, deceitfully so. They say, listen, we can't enter into this deal with you because we're circumcised people. You're an uncircumcised people. And that's uh, an abomination to us. We can't do it. So to make this deal work, here's what we have to do. 
you and your son and all the males in your country have to be circumcised. And if you'll do that, then we'll be able to enter into a pact with you and we'll become one people with you. And Dinah can become Shechem's wife and we'll move forward. If you're not willing to do that, no problem, but, but we're going to take Dinah and, and we're going to go our, our separate ways. Now before I go on with the story, I do want to say that the brothers were being deceitful here, but just to be clear, they were completely wrong about the terms of the covenant of circumcision. You remember in Genesis 17, God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and here's the point of it. I'm, I'm giving you a sign that separates you from the nations of the world. Not that gives you a way to make pacts with the nations of the world. God was saying to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob, come away from them and be separate for a time. The separation of the nation of Israel would eventually come to mean the blessing of all the nations of the earth. So God had all the nations in His mind, but for a season, beloved, separation was absolutely necessary and circumcision was the sign of that separation. Now these sons turn it on its head and say, all you have to do to become one with us is be circumcised. They're making circumcision a sign of unity when God had made it a sign of separation. They're putting a lie in the mouth of God. They're twisting the covenant of God. And I know they're trying to be deceitful, but I don't know how much they understood about the terms of the covenant. I really don't. And I just want us to be clear. What they're saying to this people here is not true. They are twisting, bastardizing the covenant of God. And it was not a good thing. And again, I just want to say, where's Jacob? Where is he? Having offered this deal though, Hamor and Shechem also took some time to consider it, I'm sure, and they accepted the deal. They run back to their city, to the city gates. And in those days, the elders of the city would, would sit in the city gate area. It's a lot like our city hall kind of concept. This was their city hall. And so Shechem and Hamor go to the city hall of the day, and they meet with all of the what would be to us like a city council. And they confer with them and they tell them, listen, we've got a great deal here. All we have to do is undergo this process. And if we undergo this process, we're going to acquire everything that Jacob has, which was substantial. So we're going to grow in size. We're going to grow in power. We're going to grow in wealth. We're going to grow in prestige. We urge you, take the deal. And the city leaders listen to them. So every male in the city in one day undergoes the pain and the process of circumcision. And on the third day, the Bible says when they were still sore, the sons of Jacob uh, concluded their horrible plan. And specifically, uh, Jacob's second and third sons, Simeon and Levi, went upon the city when the men were defenseless. And when they were fearless, they thought that they were at ease. They thought that they were safe. They took swords and they came upon the city and they literally killed every single male inside that city. That is not justice. What happened to their sister was horrible, but that is not justice. They killed Hamor, they killed Shechem, they killed every male in that city. They took their, their sister, the Bible sometimes calls him, uh, her, their daughter, even though she was actually their brother. But they took their sister Dinah and they went back home. Sometime later, all the sons of Jacob came back and they plundered the city. And when I say that, I mean they took everything. They took everything. You'll see it there if you read it. They took flocks, herds, donkeys, everything that was in the houses, everything that was in the fields, all the wealth that they could find. They also took their children. They also took their wives. They took everything. They took everything. They plundered the entire 
city. This was horrible, beloved. And finally, now, after all this, tragedy followed by a tragic reaction to tragedy, finally Jacob speaks. Going a little bit on memory right now, but if I remember right in chapter 34, he doesn't speak a single word until right now, until it's all over, until frankly it's kind of too late. And what he does is he rebukes his sons. He says to Simeon and Levi, he says, what are you thinking? What are you doing? You just brought an enormous amount of trouble upon me. You just made me a stench in the nostrils of these peoples here. And don't you understand, if they get a mind and gather against us, they could destroy me, they could destroy us, they could kill us, they could kill everything you just acquired. What are you thinking? And all the sons say back to him as dad, what should we have done then? Should we have been like you? Should we have let this guy treat our sister like a hooker and done nothing? Really? And with that, it's just amazing to me, the story just ends right there. Jacob doesn't respond. Moses doesn't write anything more. You're just left hanging with tragedy and a difficult response to tragedy and a dad who had been passive. And now finally at the end of the day tries to, to come and say something and do something, but it's too little too late. Just too little too late. This is one place where I think the chapter divisions in the Bible are not always helpful because chapter 35 is a continuation of the story. You've got to read it like there's no separation there. And what you have to see is this whole thing, that, that feeling of ugh that I feel right now at the end of the story is what Jacob felt on his soul. I'm sure he felt sad about what had happened to Dinah and what happened with his sons and how he had responded or failed to respond. I'm sure he felt afraid still of the nations around him. And I think more profoundly he felt disillusioned by now what? I'm a foreigner, I'm a sojourner in this land and God promised to my grandpa and to my dad and now to me, God promised to give me all this land and now that this has happened and everybody hates me, what's going to happen? God Almighty showed up and spoke to me and led me for 20 years. I finally come back into this land and now this? Now this? I think Jacob probably slipped pretty deeply into depression. I really do. I, I'm not so sure that, that, uh, that I would have done any different, but I'm, I'm certain of one thing, that this whole thing was very, very, very heavy for Jacob. I'm certain of that. In the midst of such a tragic and difficult time, in the midst of such pain and confusion, the God of Jacob shows up. Here's his hope. In the midst of all of this, God shows up. And he just says, Jacob, I don't know how God actually spoke. In my heart, I just hear him speaking gently, tenderly. Jacob, come down to Bethel with me. Come, come down to Bethel. Jacob had settled in Shechem. Bethel was about 25 miles to the south. And you'll remember, Bethel was that place where Jacob, when he was leaving this area, that's the place where God met him. This is the place where Jacob camped out and, and took a rock for a pillow. Alex and Kimmy are going up to the North Shore tonight. I hope they don't use rocks for pillows. Jacob did that. Somehow as he crashed out, God gave him an amazing dream and showed him this ladder between heaven and earth. And he saw angels ascending and descending. And even more powerfully, he saw the Lord God Almighty in His glory. And God spoke to him. And Jacob turned that pillow, that rock, into a pillar. 
and he poured ointment upon it and he worshipped God and he called that place Bethel, the house of God. And that's where God promised to be faithful to Jacob. And Jacob said, if you're faithful to me, you will be my God. Now God, beloved, after so many difficulties, God is wooing Jacob and saying, come back, my son. Come back. Come back to Bethel. And so Jacob, in obedience to the Lord, he calls his entire household together, which was very sizable, by the way. He calls everybody together, and he says something that to me is very telling about the, the state of his household and part of the depth of the meaning of, of these two chapters in this part of the story. So please look there with me at chapter 35, verses 2 through 3, and just please read carefully and, and, and prayerfully. Here's what Jacob says to his household after God spoke to him. Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Now, fathers especially, what would ever cause you to say to your family, put your other gods away from you? Well, the only reason you would say that to your family is if they were worshiping other gods and you knew it. And I think that that's what was going on here. Jacob had allowed the worship of other gods to come inside of his household. Now, I wonder where those gods came from. A few sources that I see. One, you remember when uh, Jacob and Rachel and everyone was leaving from Laban? You remember Rachel stole the household gods from her father. That would have been uh, this King Tut exhibit down there, by the way, at the Science Museum was so helpful to me in this because there at the King Tut thing, you see all these different idols. You just see models of very, the very things the Bible was talking about, right, in the Bible? In those days, in the very days we're talking about here, is what I mean to say. You, you see the actual statues that these worship, that these people worshiped, and so, so, Rachel had taken statues like that because they thought that somehow they were connected to gods and she hid them and, and kept them. We're never told that she got rid of those gods. She probably still had them with her to this day. That's one source. That she would do that and no one else would rebuke her for it shows me that there's a heart inside of Jacob's household to worship the Lord, yes, but also other gods just in case. And so I'm assuming that as they took the 1,500 mile journey from where they were first living to where they're at now, that's a long way on foot. And I'm sure they came across a lot of different kinds of peoples and a lot of different so-called gods. And I'm sure that those who had a heart to cover their bases and protect this and that probably acquired more and more of these gods inside their household, inside the household of Jacob, inside the household that was in the line of the promise of God for the salvation of the nations. A third source that I see that's more directly related to this story is that when the sons of Jacob plundered the city of Shechem and took everything, I am certain that that means that they also took their gods as well and brought them into the household of Jacob. Just call on your memory of the Bible now. So many times from here all the way throughout the Old Testament, God is, is continually telling His people, divide yourself from the nations and do not intermarry with them. Why? Two reasons. Number one, if you intermarry with other nations, you will eventually adopt their practices and those practices are abominable to me, the Lord. And number two, 
Along with that, if you marry, intermarry into other nations, you will eventually worship their gods. And every time that the nation of Israel did intermarry with others, that's exactly what happened. The most poignant example of that that's coming to my mind right now is King Solomon. He's a great king, a powerful king. In fact, the, the kingdom of Israel was, was more vast and more powerful under King Solomon than at any other time in the history of the earth to this day. It was very powerful. And Solomon lost it. And how did he lose it? He lost it by intermarrying with many other women and then eventually worshiping their gods as well. Yes, he worshiped the Lord, but he also worshiped other gods. Every time Israel brought the wives of other nations into their household, they worshiped their gods. And what happened here? Yes, the sons of Levi killed the men of Shechem, but they took their wives. And along with that, they took their gods, beloved. And so, as far as Jacob goes, how, whatever the sources were, over the years, this man actually allowed the worship of the Lord, yes, but the worship of other gods. Dads, imagine this. Imagine you're here this morning worshiping the Lord your God and His blessed Son, Jesus Christ, but today you go home and with your knowledge... Your children have idols inside their rooms to Buddha and to Muhammad and to Hindu gods and to whomever, and you know it and you allow it to happen. You're worshiping Jesus and you're allowing them to worship other gods. This was Jacob's household, beloved. It was an idolatrous household in that sense. That was what was going on. But at a time of deep despair... The Lord God shows up to Jacob and speaks to him. And you'll notice in verse in chapter 35, he doesn't speak a single word of rebuke to Jacob. Man, that just jumped out at me so hard this week. God knew the true state of Jacob's household, and he did not speak a word of rebuke. Rather, in loving, relentless grace, he just wooed this man to himself. Jacob, come with me. Come with me to Bethel. Come and be with me. Out of loving obedience to God, Jacob now commanded his family. He stood up. For the first time that I see in these couple chapters, he stood up and led. And he said, family, put your gods away. And purify yourselves. Whatever that meant, I'm not sure. But purify yourselves. And change your garments. Some of those garments that they wore, jewelry and other things, had to do with the gods that they were worshiping. So purify all of that. Get rid of all of that. Bring it to me. And they did it. They brought all those things to Jacob. He hid them under a tree in Shechem. Probably means he buried them and did away with them forever. And then as a family, they headed to Bethel. God protected them the whole way because he was Jacob's defender. And when they got to Bethel, he built a second altar there and he worshipped God, the God of Israel. He worshipped Him with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. God had wooed him. Jacob had responded. God had, had, had showered him with relentless grace, ceaseless grace that kept pouring over this man despite his failures and tragedies. And Jacob responded with an un, a more undivided devotion toward God. And he responded by calling his family to undivided devotion to the Lord. Right at this time, another blow strikes Jacob's family. Deborah, his mother's nurse, dies. Now that probably means that Rebecca herself had died. So Jacob's mother, you remember, he's very close to his mother. Somewhere along the way, his mother died. 
And most likely what happened was that, that Jacob took her nurse into his household because Jacob was so close to Rebecca that he was probably also close to her nurse, Deborah. This old lady now, Deborah, probably knew Jacob all the days of his life and he felt deeply for her. So now he's, he's brought her into his household and now she dies. He buries her and calls it the Oak of Weeping. Why? Because her death brought back a million memories for him. Her death brought back his whole life in a sense. His life with his mother. All the deceptions that they did together. All of the blessings God poured on them despite their deceptions. All of the grace of God going back to Padan Aram and, and now back into the promised land. Everything in his life, I think, came back to him in the death of Deborah. And, and Jacob wept and he buried her. And he moved on with his life. After she died, they continued... Uh, there in Bethel for a little while. And right there, I believe Jacob sort of in a time of disillusionment after grieving the death of his mother, God shows up in a very powerful way there to him in Bethel. Now he shows up to him, I think, physically, visibly, and he speaks to Jacob in powerful, powerful terms. Let me see if I can find the quote here. I've got it in my notes here. Here we go. Chapter 35, verses 10 through 12. God speaks into Jacob's life. Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so God called his name Israel. He's just reiterating what had happened to him last week in, in, in the sermon as we saw. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a, a company of nations will come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. And so with this powerful reiteration of the promises that God made to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob 20 years before, and now again, Jacob builds a third altar to God and worships God. And beloved, I think the point is, you see now, in a very short time, he's built two altars of worship. Moses is trying to paint this picture for us that no matter what tragedy, no matter what failure, no matter what consequence, no matter what happens, the relentless grace of God is going to keep pursuing Jacob and causing him to undividedly worship the God of his fathers and now the God of his own heart. This is the story of an imperfect man with a messed up family and a very gracious God. That's what the story is about. God chose Jacob. That's his hope. This is Jacob's hope. And so no matter what Jacob goes through, God is going to pursue him and, and, and uh, instigate an undivided heart of worship toward the Lord in him. The Lord is just amazingly gracious. That's what the story is about. I don't know how much time passed between verses 15 and 16, but you'll see there starting in verse 16, uh, another tragedy hits Jacob, a hard one. A very hard one for him. His precious beloved wife, Rachel, the love of his life, the treasure of his heart for all the days of his life. She's apparently pregnant again on the way down to Bethlehem. I don't know why they're going to Bethlehem. In those days it was called Ephratah, but later it was called Bethlehem, the place where Jesus himself was born. They're traveling down there. She goes into labor and the labor becomes hard and unfortunately it's so hard that she actually dies in the midst of the birthing process. She names her son Ben-Ani, son of my sorrow, but he says, no, no, he'll be Ben-Yamin, 
Benjamin, the son of my right hand, he'll be the son of my honor, he'll be the son of my strength, he'll be the son of my blessing. This one will be precious to me. And that, that was true all the days of Benjamin's life. And while I'm sure that Jacob was overjoyed to have another son, especially by Rachel, he was also overwhelmed by grief. He had to have been overwhelmed by grief. This was the love of his life. Absolutely the treasure of his heart all the days of his life. And I can't even imagine his grief. I can't. I've thought many times about what it would be like for me if Kimmy died. I, don't, I just honestly don't even know how I'd get up the next day and live. I know God would help me. I know that. I'm just telling you emotionally, I just don't know how I would move on. And, and I think that's how Jacob felt. He would never see his precious love again. He would never hear her voice. He would never hear her laughter. They would never share in the small joys. He would never smell the smell of her again. He would never feel her touch again. She was gone and gone forever. And he was deeply, deeply grieved. And so he built an enormous, beautiful, elaborate tomb. And I put it that way because when Moses wrote Genesis some four or five hundred years after these things actually happened, you'll see there in the text that it said that that, that the tomb Jacob built to Rachel was still there to that day. That's four or five hundred years later. And then in 1 Samuel, whoever wrote 1 Samuel, chapter 10, verse 2, that's another four or five hundred years after Moses, and they said that the tomb still existed then. So Jacob builds a monument to Rachel that lasted at least a thousand years. And that was not a monument to a great person, beloved. That was a monument to the depth of love this man felt for that woman. You ever wonder how much Jacob loved Rachel? Think of that tomb. It's a symbol of how deep and strong and long his love had been for her. How he really felt about her in the depth of his heart. From the moment that he saw her at that well, he felt deeply for her. And this tomb stands to testify to that. But alas, people die. And God is still good. And life must go on. And somehow or other, by the grace of God, life went on for Jacob. I should tell you, by the way, at the times where I've really contemplated Kimmy's death and what I would do, I thought, the thought occurred to me that the reason I feel like I couldn't go on right now is because I don't have the grace to go on. If Kim actually died, God would give me the grace to do the things that I had to do. And just like that with Jacob here, I'm sure he felt like he could not go on, but God in His mercy gave him the grace to do what he felt like he probably could not do, so he went on with his life. And he settled somewhere south of Bethlehem. Now look there in verse 22, chapter 35, 30, uh, 22. As if all this is not enough, look what happens. His oldest son, the one who, according to culture, is supposed to inherit everything. It's supposed to go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Reuben. His oldest son decides to go and have relations with one of Jacob's wives. With his concubine, Bilhah, the one who bore him Dan and Naphtali. Dads, put yourself in that place. What would that feel like for you if your son did that to you? This is unbelievable. This is a, a level of moral failure that's hard to get your mind around. And Moses just kind of drops it in there on the way by. Rachel died, and oh, by the way, Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Now later, that's going to become very important. But for now, what I hope that you see and feel is this feeling in Jacob's life of blow after blow after blow after blow after blow. And over and over, under and through it all, an amazingly gracious God who will not let him go. Jacob's hope was not in the holiness of his family or the perfection of his character. Jacob's hope was found in three words. God chose 
Jacob. That's where his hope lied. And I think Moses is trying to say to us, no matter what happened, God was going to fulfill his promises. And we'll see over the next four weeks as we finish Genesis out, we will see that God was faithful to all of his promises to this man and to his family all the way to the very end. Moses then quickly just reiterates uh, uh, Jacob's children. Let me put it to you this way. Four wives, twelve sons, one God. That's where we've come to. Wasn't always that way. Before it was four wives, twelve sons, who knows how many gods. Now it's four wives, twelve sons, one God. One God. Very gracious, very mighty, very much with Him. And after that we learn that Isaac, the old man, full of years, even older than his father Abraham, at the ripe old age of 180, having been filled with the grace and the mercy of God all the days of his life, Isaac now passes off of the scene and Esau and Jacob come near to bury him and Jacob is now the patriarch. It was the God of Abraham and then it was the God of Isaac and now it is the God of Jacob. I will never forget that day in my life. It was 1998. It had been about a week since my stepfather had died, and his death marked a massive shift in my life. My dad had died when I was 11 years old. My mother died when I was 27 years old. And now my stepfather, who had been my father for 20 years, so this man was my dad. He actually was my dad longer than my, my biological father was. Now he dies. And, and, and I have no grandparents now, I have no parents, and I'm now the out front generation. And I, and I don't know if you know what that feels like, but unless your grandparents and parents have died, let me just tell you, it's impossible to help you understand what that feels like. The mantle of my family went on my shoulders in that day, along with my other brothers and sisters. But you know, it's kind of funny in the dynamics of my family. I'm the sixth children of six, but since I came to Christ, I don't know what it is, but in the dynamics of my family, my brothers even call me dad. My brothers call me dad. Because somehow or another, it's like God has put a, a mantle of something on me in my family, and I don't know what it is. I don't know where it comes from, but I know that day it landed upon me, and I remember sitting in my parents' living room and saying, man, this is no chapter, new chapter in my life. This is like a new volume in my life. When I went to college, that was a new chapter. When I went to seminary, that was a new chapter. But this, no. This was a volume change in my life. And it has been that. It has been that. Jacob must have felt just like that. Except more so. His mother's dead. His precious wife is dead. His father is dead. And now the mantle of the family, and much more importantly, of the promises of God for the salvation of all the nations of the world, the mantle of that rests upon the shoulders of Jacob. This is his new life. And you know why God brought him to this point, beloved? Because in His grace, God knew He was ready for it. God knew. God had prepared this man through so much stuff. You can see with me in Genesis. This, this was messed up, man. This guy, his character's messed up. His family's messed up. But God brought him to the place where he was ready to do what he previously could not do. This story, again, is about an imperfect man being led by a, a God of relentless grace. And Jacob's hope is summed up in three words. God chose Jacob. Now, in closing, I just want to say that we who believe in Christ in particular are really very like Jacob. If you don't believe in Christ today, I want to encourage you to do that. 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, one day sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into this world so that whoever would believe in Jesus Christ would not perish for their sins, but have everlasting life. In other words, the way to get forgiveness out of God is to believe in His solution to your sin, and that's Jesus Christ. So believe in Him, and Jacob's hope will become your hope. If that has been true of you, then what I want to say is you and I are very much like Jacob. We who believe in Christ are much like Him. And and here's what I mean. Three things. Like Jacob, God chose us. We did not choose Him. Jesus said it this straight in John 15-16. You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. That is tremendously good news. That the terms of the relationship I have with Christ depend on Christ. He said, I have given you eternal life and no one will snatch you out of My hands. Why? Because I chose you. I chose you. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 and in Colossians 3, and the Bible says in many other places in the New Testament, that we are believers because God first made a decision about us. Our hope is Jacob's hope. God chose us. And because God chose us, the promises that God made to us, like the promises He made to Jacob, are sure as sure can be. Now we don't have time to reiterate all the promises, but let me just give you a a couple pertinent ones. Number one, I will complete the work that I began in you all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. Now if that doesn't give you hope, I just want to say it's warm in here and you've fallen asleep. Wake up! The God who saved you promised to keep you all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. Your fidelity to God is dependent upon Him, not upon you. And man, is that good news. In my heart, I am not a faithful man, but God is a faithful God and He will make me faithful. He will continue to woo me just like Jacob until my heart is undividedly devoted to Him. He will do that. And I say it with joy and with confidence because the God of Jacob still lives today. He's alive today and He's with us. Third thing, just like Jacob, we're not even close to perfect people. And our families aren't even close to perfect. If you feel like your family is messed up, then praise God, welcome to the club of people whom God has been walking with for centuries and millennia. Welcome to the, to the race of those who are recipients of the relentless grace of God. It's not about our perfection. It's about His grace. And if you feel all broken, you're a perfect candidate for walking with God. A perfect candidate. You just got to understand, beloved, Jacob's not just some other, some guy. He's up there with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, with King David. He's one of the greats in the history of the world and he was deeply broken. It was the grace of God that was his hope and it's the grace of God that is our hope as well. Praise be to God. Since our hope is in God, I just want to close with these simple words, put your false gods away. Just let God woo you to Himself. Whatever it is that is pulling your heart, whatever the other things are in your life, you have the Lord plus other things, just get rid of those other things. Unite your heart in the fear of the Lord and you will see that Jacob's hope is your hope too. Let's pray. Father, I love You. Oh God, how I love You. 
I'm just so grateful to you, Father. You've been such a gracious God. You're so gracious to Jacob, Lord. Gracious beyond imagination. And you have been so gracious to me, God. Immensely patient with me. You have been so gracious to everyone in this room and everyone hearing this sermon online, Lord, who believes in you. You have been so gracious to us day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And we just want to tell you, we love you. Oh, woo us to yourself, God of Jacob. Woo us to yourself and breed in us an undivided heart of devotion and love for you, Father. We surrender ourselves to your work in us. And we thank you for what you'll do. In the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, amen.